seated this morning. I selected this song before the, the preaching this morning because I think that song is an accurate prayer, a plea in response to every one of the seven letters that we've been looking at in the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, verses 7 through 13, but I hope that you've seen that the way that we have handled these letters, uh, it may be somewhat different from what you've seen in the past. Um, I'm profoundly persuaded that the message of the churches, they're not given as illustrations of here's the good things in the churches, do that. Here's the bad things in the churches, don't do those. But in all of it, the message of Christ to his church as he walks in the midst of his churches, that's Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, uh, is him. He is the answer. He is ultimately, in every letter, the message is pointing he, to himself uh, in every aspect of it. And I think that that song is an accurate prayer Rock of Ages, and that's Jesus. Help me hide myself in you. In everything, good and bad, strong and weak, help me hide in you. You alone are our hope. And it will be the same this morning as we look at the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Thus speaks Christ to his church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as we look at this letter to the church at Philadelphia this morning, this one is, is particular. It's unique from the other letters that we've seen uh, in that in this one, there, there's no complaint. Uh, we, we've acknowledged a pattern in, in most of the letters where uh, Jesus, who's walking in the midst of his churches, he's observing, he's acknowledging, he, he's drawing attention to different things, strengths, weaknesses. He, he's calling churches to repentance, to, to, to cling to him, to return to him. Uh, he's giving promises. That As we come to this one, uh, there's no complaint that Christ has for this church. 
And I think it begs a question before we even get into it. So we're kind of doing a 30,000-foot view here before we get into the text. The fact that there's no complaint for the church at Philadelphia, are we seeing a perfect church? As we look at Philadelphia here, are we seeing, if, if Christ who walks in their midst and observing things, he, he has no rebuke for them, is Philadelphia the perfect church? And the answer is, of course not. Absolutely not. Is this a church of perfect people who have matured, who have arrived, who have so grown in the relationship with the Lord that Christ just can't say anything to them? Absolutely not. There's not a single perfect person in the church at Philadelphia. There is no one who can stand before Jesus Christ and say, there is nothing in me lacking. I have arrived. I have attained perfection. There's no sin in me. I've reached maturity in every area of my life. There's nobody who can say that. So it, it's not a perfect church. It it's, doesn't have a single perfect member. So what are we looking at here? It would seem that there would be all kinds of reasons for Jesus to rebuke this church, just as he's done with the others. Well, how are we to understand that he doesn't have this rebuke? I think it's this. He's not saying they're perfect. He's not saying they're arrived. But what he is saying is this. They're on the right track. They're on the right track. We've come to understand the Christian life as a journey with a destination. The destination is Christ himself. The destination is eternity with him in his presence, loving him, enjoying him, fellowshipping with him, communing with him in eternity forever. The journey to get there is full of ups and downs, but the grace to persevere through those ups and downs and get there to that destination is the same as the destination. You cling to Jesus through those ups and downs. On your best day when you are, by God's grace, walking in righteousness and obedience and you've overcome temptations and it's been a good day, don't, don't celebrate you. You need Jesus every much as then as you do on those difficult days where it got me. I stumbled, I fell, I'm overcome, and all I've got is Jesus. The journey is one of clinging to Jesus, looking to Jesus, bringing Jesus in his infinite perfections, his person, his work to bear upon our lives every moment of every day. That is the means of grace to get us to that destination. And the church at Philadelphia, they're doing that. They're not perfect. They've not reached full perfect maturity. They definitely need to keep moving forward in the Christian life. They haven't reached that eternal destination yet. They're still in this world. They're still here. They're still living in the Roman Empire. They're still facing these ups and downs. But I think what Jesus' message to them is, but you are clinging to me. You are looking to me. You are hoping in me. As you are overwhelmed, and he's going to say some stunning things about the church here in just a moment. But he says, but this, you love me. And I think that's the reason there's not a rebuke here for the church. Because they're on the right path. Think about it if you're 
if you're driving somewhere, like you're going on vacation, you've got a destination you're trying to get to, what sense would it make for the, the people in the car with you to rebuke you? You're, you, you? It's a six-hour drive. You're just getting started. And they start rebuking you. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Dad, Mom, why are we not there yet? It, it's a journey. Are we on the right track? Are we on the right road? Am I going in the right direction? Yeah? Well, then be patient. We're going, in the, we're going to get there. And that's kind of what we have going on here. Christ looks at the church at Philadelphia, and they're on the right track. They're on the right road. And by that, I mean they are clinging to Jesus. They are hoping in Jesus. We're going to see they don't have much. They, they, they don't have much of anything. All they have is Christ, and they are holding on to him. And this is the church to which Jesus doesn't have a rebuke. They're looking unto him as their Lord, their Savior, their King, their treasure, their everything, their oxygen, their food. And the fact that they're not perfect is not a reason to rebuke them. And I think there's, again, kind of broadly speaking, there's something that, there's a caution there for us as well. I think as followers of Christ, as followers of the king, we want to echo his sentiments. When it, how our king speaks, we want to speak. And how our king doesn't speak, I don't know that we have the right to speak. And I think it's important to us to understand that when it comes to our lives and, and even ministry, there's always going to be dissatisfactions. There's always going to be areas where we're not as strong as we think we should be individually and corporately. But that's not necessarily a reason to rebuke. I mean, think about it with our children or perhaps your grandchildren. We teach our, maybe if you have a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, maybe you're starting to give them some chores around the house. And if, if your six-year-old child or grandchild, if you think back, was, is like mine, uh, when I ask him to clean his room, or when Jamie asks him to clean his room, uh, he doesn't clean it to the depth and capacity that she's going to do it. But we don't, I think if we're thinking properly, we don't rebuke him for, you didn't clean it as good as I do. We understand he's a child. He's growing. Now, there are certain fundamental things that should be there, but as he matures, as he grows, those things, he'll grow in those capacities as well. And that's kind of the mentality here that Christ demonstrates for his church. He's acknowledging there's weakness in the church. He's acknowledging they lack strength. They lack power. We'll get into that in just a moment. But he says, this you do. For where you're at, you're clinging to me. You're loving me. You're devoted to me. You've not departed from my word, which reveals Christ. You're on the right track. So the fact that we've not reached perfect maturity or that we've not arrived is not a reason to cast rebuke on our own soul or on our ministry. Now, I do contrast that with this is different from an individual or a church that is willfully rejecting Christ that is willfully disobeying Christ, that is willfully compromising the truth of Christ and living under Christ and clinging. Now that we've seen in all the other churches to which Christ says, repent. But what we have here, as Jesus walks among the church at Philadelphia, he doesn't see that. He sees they are clinging and it may be immature, it may be youthful, it may not be extravagant, but they've got in Christ everything, and they're loving him. 
And therefore, by grace, his message to the church at Philadelphia is continue in your faithfulness. What you're doing now, clinging to Jesus, looking to Jesus in the ups and downs, bringing him to bear upon everything in your life, continue in that. Don't depart from that. So there's no rebuke. And I think that's an encouragement to us. You can be probably like me. We're our own worst enemies. And we're always finding reasons to kick our own selves in the gut, to find fault. And again, if there is willful rebellion away from Christ, kick away. But if it is a fact that we're still children, and we're looking to Jesus, and we're, we're clinging to him, and we're hoping in him, I mean, life is like this, and some days are better than others, and some seasons of life are better than others. But I know what I must do. I know to whom I must turn. Well, then continue on in faithfulness. Pray for grace that that may continue to grow and spread. And so that's kind of the broad context. And as Jesus walks amongst this church here in Philadelphia, he he makes an observation. He makes an observation. He He gives them a promise and then an exhortation. And let's look first at the observation that he makes of this church. It's in verse 7. Seven and eight. Again, Jesus just introduces himself to the church and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia right. These are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Verse eight. I know, here's his observation. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Notice what Christ observes there. I know your works. I know your deeds. Again, verse 8, he says, I know you have but little strength or little power. I know that even in that context, you've kept my word. I know that you've not denied my name, Jesus says. I know you've not, there's been temptation, the Roman Empire, you got the Jews, you got all kinds of temptations and trials, and it would be very easy to turn away from Christ, to turn to other things, to add to Christ. But you've not done that. You've kept a pure heart, a true heart of Christ and Christ alone. You've not denied me. You've clung to me. And I said, what a great report. And it comes in the context of Jesus observes this about them. I know you're lacking in power. I know you have but little power, little strength. What's he talking about? Historically, here's what we know about the church at Philadelphia. Contextually, it was a small church. I mean, it is another one that probably as the letters are being distributed, they're saying, Philadelphia? The church at Philadelphia? I didn't even even know there was one anymore. It was so small in number there in the city of Philadelphia. Also, the the comment, you have but little power, probably speaks to power against the impending persecution that they're facing. They're living in the midst of the, the Roman Empire, and the Jews are ganging up on them as well. And the church at Philadelphia knows. We're weak. We're frail. There's nothing we can do to ward that off, to fight that off. All we can do is just cling to our king and hope in him. 
So in that context, overwhelming enemies around them, overwhelming darkness around them, this is all I've got, is Christ. And we're just going to be faithful to Him and His Word. And also it speaks to the fact that we know historically, I don't mean this badly, the church at Philadelphia had very little influence on the culture around it. Very little influence. They could have tried other mechanisms, other means to maybe have more influence. The message of look to Jesus, hope in Jesus, cling to Jesus, repent, turn away from your sins, turn away from good things, turn away from bad things, turn away from shallow things, and turn to a person, a king, uh, that wasn't resonating. Uh, there weren't a lot of conversions happening around Philadelphia. And they could have subsequently tried other things. Well, let's alter the message a little bit. Let's, let's maybe figure out a way to make it more palatable. But they didn't. And I, I can't help but wonder for us individually. Maybe we see a lot of Philadelphia in us. As individuals, do you ever struggle with discouragement? Like, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, but man, I just, I, don't, I, don't, I just seem to exist. I don't seem to make any difference. Do you struggle with feelings of insignificance? Feelings of inadequacy against the, the darkness and the temptations and the, uh, that, that's around us, that surrounds us? Yeah. I think these are normal things that Christians throughout human history have dealt with. We are not unique in that. It's exactly what the church at Philadelphia is facing as well. And again, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy because we feel inadequate, because we feel insufficient, because we feel worthless, because we feel like we're really not making any difference, because we're not doing this or doing that, that somewhere, somewhere down the road told us you, know, we, you should be doing. And, and it may, may be we kick ourselves. We rebuke ourselves. Well, if there's willful rebellion against Jesus, kick away. But I think how gracious of King Jesus as he walks amongst the seven churches. He is not hesitant to call his people to repentance. He's done so in, in just about every other instance. But here, in kindness and mercy as he walks amongst the church at Philadelphia. Listen, I see your weakness. I see what you're going up against. I see your struggles. You feel insufficient. You feel inadequate. You feel like uh, you're discouraged. What difference are you making? And yet Jesus writes to encourage them. Continue in your faithfulness. Again, the contrast here has to do with where there's willful rebellion. You must repent. That's not what he's seeing here in Philadelphia. And despite what they feel, despite what people from on the outside may observe, the king says, I've got this word of encouragement for you. I think it's a gracious word. And notice he says to them there in verse 8, Behold, I've set before you an open door that no one can shut. This is his encouragement to them. Behold, I've opened a door 
that no one can shut. Well, what is this open door that he's encouraging? Why, why should this encourage them when they're battling discouragement and feelings of inadequacy and feelings like my life is, I won't say worthless, but it's not making any difference. Well, this door is the kingdom of God. This door is entry into the kingdom of God where in contrast to the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, in the kingdom of God where Jesus rules, where Jesus is, where he reigns, where he is Lord, King, Savior, Treasure, where he is all in all. And the open door means that the way has been made for these people in Philadelphia to enjoy that, to find their hope in that, to cling to that. The open door has been made for them to depart the kingdom of this world and to have citizenship in that kingdom. And we find Jesus addressing this early in his ministry. It's not news to us. When Jesus, well, even before Jesus arrives on the scene, we have John the Baptist entering the scene and, and laying out the message of the gospel. Repent, the first word of the gospel, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from these things. John the Baptist came to, to straighten out the roads, to, to the high marks, to bring them down, the low marks, to bring them up. Meaning those who are prideful and proud and think they don't need Christ, they need to be humbled. And those who are in the pit of despair and maybe like Philadelphia here, struggling with discouragement and I'm unworthy to bring them up and say, hey, level the ground and say, Here's the road to Christ. Repent from all other things and turn to your king. The way into the kingdom is through Jesus Christ. It's through who he is and what he's done. The good news that God's son has become one of us. He's taken on our race. He's, he's become one of us and fulfilled the law's righteous requirements. He's done what you and I and our first parents, Adam and Eve, could not do. And simultaneously, that one went to the cross bearing God's wrath in the flesh through his atoning death on the cross so that what happened after Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, expressing the Father's satisfaction with the son's sacrificial death, his atoning death, and with the rending of the, the temple veil, the door is open. The door into the kingdom of God has been made accessible. That's why Jesus came. He lived. He died to open that door to the kingdom of God. And that's why back in verse 7, I said we'd come back to that in a moment. In verse 7, we have this reference of the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. The key of David, who opens and no one will shut, but who shuts and no one will open. Well, what is this key of David? Well, this takes us back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 22. There we have... Uh, an Old Testament individual, Eliakim, who has the key of David. He's a representative of the king, King Hezekiah. And he has the key that gives access to King Hezekiah's throne room. You want into the throne room of the king? You've got to meet up with Hezekiah 
he's got the key, it's called the key of David, into the king's throne room. Well, in that passage, uh, in great folly, the Eliakim, who has the key, allows the enemy access into the throne room, and it creates a whole problem. But it's that key that Jesus is referencing here. That key is an allusion to the key that Jesus possesses. The key into the throne room, not of King David or of King Hezekiah, but of the King, Almighty God. And it's Jesus who has this key. We don't have the key. It doesn't reside within our power. It doesn't reside within our wills. He has the key. He's the one who opens. And if he opens, no one can shut. But when he shuts, when he shuts, cannot be opened. I set before you, Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, with all their weakness, with all their lack of power, I set before you an open door. And Jesus has already said to them, I have the key to that open door, which means if I've opened it to you, you have access to me. And no one, not the Roman Empire, not the Jews, no one has the power to take that away from you, to tell you that you don't have access to me just because they have a different belief system. Jesus encourages them, and the language is emphatic in the Greek. It's behold, with the Greek there, look, look, I have put before your face a door, an open door. And an open door, it's an aorist participle, which simply means I've opened it, and it remains open. I opened it through my death, the resurrection, and it remains open to you, church at Philadelphia. You who have not denied me. You who are clinging to my word. Yes, no, you're not a perfect church. Far from it. But you're on the right track because you're looking to me. You're loving me. You're holding on to me. I'm everything to you. You're on the right track. We're on this journey to this destination. The door is open. I'm holding it open for you. And as long as you continue faithfully looking unto Jesus, clinging to him, You'll get there. You'll persevere to the very end. That's his encouragement. Jesus has provided himself to them forever. It may feel like hell stands in front of you. It may feel like the enemy is overwhelming. You may feel like your flesh is telling you it can't be. But these are the words of, by his own confession, the Holy One the true one who cannot lie, who cannot be wrong, the one who holds the key, the one who opens the door and no one will shut it. The enemy may, t may tell you you don't have access. Your flesh may tell you you don't have access. You may be rebuking yourself, which is appropriate if there is willful rebellion against King Jesus. That's not what's happening here. This takes great discernment. But if we're rebuking ourselves because we're not where we think we should be, Jesus says, keep looking to me. You're on the right track. 
And Jesus says, I've given you access. You've gone through this door now. We just got to get the destination there. What an encouragement that has to be to them. To hear Jesus speak that to them. And again, Jesus speaks to these seven churches because they are representative of all churches in all places at all times. As we look at ourselves individually and corporately, we ought to see there's pieces of Ephesus in us. There's people of, pieces of Laodicea in us. There's pieces of Smyrna in us. There's pieces of Thyatira in us. I pray God, by God's grace, there's pieces of Philadelphia in us. And where there is areas where we are being faithful to Jesus Christ, do we understand the blessing that, no, we may not be satisfied with where we are, but Christ, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our treasure, is intimately acquainted with us and says, you're on the right track. If you're looking unto Jesus, if you're hoping in Him, if you're, you've turned off all else, you're on the right track. Philadelphia was not known historically for anything but this. They loved Jesus. He was their all. And that was their ministry. That's the observation Christ makes about them. And then, wonderfully, Christ makes a series of promises to them. Promises that are intended, again, to encourage and comfort them in the context in which they live. Verse 10, he talks about the hour of trial. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That's a peculiar statement. There are a peculiar promise in light of the book of Revelation and in the broader context of the whole Bible. Because here he tells the church at Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Meanwhile, he told the church at Smyrna, oh, there's more, there's more suffering coming. There's more affliction. There's more trial. There's more hardship. Some of you are going to be put in prison because of your faithfulness to me. Some of you will even die a martyr's death because of your faithfulness to me. And it can look as if what Jesus is saying, Smyrna Christians you're going to suffer trial and martyrdom. Philadelphia Christians, if you just look at it just straightforward, you're not. I'm going to take you out of the world so that you're not going to experience that. The truth of the matter is you've got to read deeper and you've got to, you've got to bring the whole of the Bible to bear upon what, what, what does this mean? What can it not mean? And I think what we have here, the Philadelphian Christians are going to suffer just like the Christians at Smyrna are going to suffer, and just like all the churches are going to suffer, in the Roman Empire, with the Jews. But the promise here is for those who are faithful to Jesus Christ, even through the hardships, you will be kept from falling into apostasy, which we've seen in other churches. You will be kept from turning away from Jesus Christ to other things in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial. Don't we know from our own flesh, it's in those moments of weakness there is the greatest temptation to turn away from Jesus. To turn away and to say, you know what, life is hard. You start to question whether Jesus really is enough, whether the Sunday morning thing we talk about, you know, is it, does, is it really making any difference? Doesn't seem to be. You know what, 
I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. It's in moments of, of great despair. At least in my life, we are most prone to apostasy, to turn away, to flee, to depart from Jesus Christ. And the promise here is that as they are faithful to Jesus Christ, he's holding on to them. He's holding on. He's not going to let them depart. He's not going to let them flee. They will be kept from that in time of tribulation. The Roman Empire is coming down on them. The Jews are coming down on them. But Jesus says, I will keep you. I'm going to ensure that through the trial you go through, my hand is upon you. My protecting hand is upon you. I will shelter you. I will protect you. I will be the cleft in the rock where you can hide. And you will find I am that rock of ages that you can find hope and healing so that even as the enemies do their worst to you, you will remain faithful to me. And again, this is why I say you've got, we've got to read this word to the church at Philadelphia in light of the broader context of Revelation and the broader context of the New Testament. Jesus said to the church at Caesarea Philippi, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what he's saying here to the church at Philadelphia. Same promise. I've built you. I've given you everything you need in Christ. And I will make sure that the enemy, even when they do their worst, will not prevail against you. Again, he says, the hour of trial is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. How in the world is this little church of insignificant, inadequate people who by Christ's own admission have no power, how in the world are they going to survive the onslaught of the Roman Empire? How are they going to survive the, the cunning deceit of the Jews? How are you and I as individuals who we profess are nothing special, how are we going to in any, have any hope of battling against Satan, the flesh, the sin nature. The same thing he promises here. Your hope is in me. I will protect you. The hand of the sovereign Lord is upon you. What did Jesus pray for his people in John 17? Think about that high priestly prayer in John 17. Go back and look at that this afternoon in your own devotional time, and in your own bringing Christ to bear in your life through difficult times. Jesus said, I do not ask, praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You keep them. I'm not asking you to get them out of here. They have a purpose here. But that you protect them because the Roman Empire, because Satan, the flesh, the sin nature, everything is coming to bear upon them. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. You protect them in Christ. That's our hope. Jesus' words to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you, to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. What a blessed reality to think that right now, our king sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding and mediating on our behalf. We're familiar with that passage, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much, right? If that's true of you and I, Goodness gracious, fall on your knees in praise and thanksgiving because the prayers of the righteous man at the right hand of the Father on high availeth much for you and I in all of our circumstances. 
What a blessing that is. That Jesus here pours out to the church at Philadelphia. Satan desires to have you. The Roman Empire is coming on strong. The Jews are throwing all kinds of empty lies about you. Too, and and you're, you don't have any power whatsoever. How are you going to survive? Look to Jesus. Because he, by his own admission, says, I am at my father's right side, interceding on your behalf, saying, I died for them. I died for the church at Philadelphia. I died for Covenant Life Church. I died for Barbara Jones. I died for Kingsley Adebayo. I died for Emily Vergara. And so on and so forth, insofar as. I shed my blood. I endured your wrath for this one. And this, just, it, it just always blows me away. The father cannot say no to his son. And I don't mean it the way that I can't say no to my son out of an emotional welling up. I mean he theologically, literally, because they are of the same mind, cannot say no to his son. Such divine equality between the Father and the Son. And so when the Son prays to the Father, the prayers of that righteous man, they don't just availeth much, they are always 100% effectual. And Christ here says to the church at Philadelphia and to you and I as encouragement, and there's all kinds of enemies going on around you and your hope is not in your power you don't have any. Look to me. Look to me at the right hand of the Father. Appropriate what I'm doing at the right hand of the Father and bring that to bear upon your life. And then in verse 11, he says, and, and I am coming soon. Again, this is another word of encouragement to them. This is language we're going to get used to hearing in the book of Revelation. And as we go through it, it leads to all kinds of speculations. Coming soon, coming soon. When, when, when. Not the point. The point of this is what care this king has for us that in spite of ourselves, he's going to come back for us. The promise of his coming soon elicits questions of when and those detract from the real issue, falling down over the promise that for all we struggle with in this world, this king who loves us at the cost of his own life, his own blood, his death, his resurrection, is coming back for us. That's the issue. That's the marvel. I wonder if you're like me and like the church at Philadelphia in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trial. You find yourself asking, does he really care? You ever uttered those words? Maybe in a moment of weakness you've uttered it to somebody else, but usually those are words we, we keep here and up here. You ever found yourself shocked that you asked yourself the question, that you had the audacity to even utter the thought, does he even care? Taken aback by it? Because we know the Lord who died for us, shed his blood for us, went to Calvary and endured the unmitigated wrath of God, drinking the cup to the full for us. 
How dare I ask, does he care for us? The, the answer is obvious. But we are but children. We are weak. And he knows you have but little power. And he understands that at any moment, as our king sovereignly rules over our lives for his glory and our good, we ourselves may struggle to understand. We ourselves may struggle to understand his timetable. We ourselves may really be unable to connect the dots and see how a God who professes to care for me would allow me to go through this, whatever this is. And we're not alone. Maybe you've heard of the old Christian William Cooper. William Cooper, a hymn writer. He was a man whose life was described as, quote, unquote, by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, one long accumulation of pain. William Cooper struggled with depression. Led him to attempt suicide on at least four occasions, intentionally trying to take his own life. By the providence of God, he failed. He was never successful. And he was burdened by this question of how a God who professes to love him and care for him would allow him through all the trials and afflictions that he's gone through. And his best answer was just, I just want out. And I bet in this room, there's a good number of us who understand exactly what he was thinking. There's so much we don't understand. But it was knowing God, looking unto Jesus, that helped him to cope. And he penned these words after his last failed suicide attempt. A couple of years later, but... God moves in mysterious ways is the title of it. God moves in mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. The very storm that had Cooper wanting to kill himself over. Now he's beginning to see God's the one who's riding the storm. Verse 2, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. He's, he's thinking in terms of God's ruling over all things, even the difficulties he's going through. And then this word of encouragement in verse 3, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. What's he saying? Things are not always what they appear to us. This goes back to our prayer time this morning in Psalm 112, right? A God-fearer is one who delights in God's word. And one of the consequences of being, of delighting in God's word is we see things from God's perspective. When we're truly in God's word, I'm not just talking about we, we're just kind of routinely just kind of schedule. I'm talking about really hungering and thirsting to know God. We begin to see and understand from his perspective. And then Cooper says this. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work, God's work in vain. 
God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Doesn't mean he'll make it plain in this life. But the promise is, the end destination is Christ. In him is everything. No more tear, no more sorrow, no more suffering. The journey is looking to Jesus through the ups and downs. When you get there, we'll look back. And in the radiance of the destination, the brilliance of Christ having him, this is going to sound audacious and this is going to sound prideful. And to you who are hurting this morning, I don't mean it irreverently. But I am persuaded on that day, and I have to preach this to my own heart. On that day in the presence of King Jesus, we will look back on every hurt and every depth of darkness and say it was worth it. Because it was, in a way I didn't understand then, God was using it to press me deeper into Christ to get me here. Does he care? Of course he does. He cares for all his little ones, all his little sheep. He cares for his little churches, even little church at Philadelphia. I'm coming soon. And this is just beautiful imagery. It's to this little church that no one would acknowledge. I will make him, verse 12, a pillar in the temple of my God. Man, it would be nice just to be a pebble, right? A pillar. Something majestic, something powerful. This weak, fledgling, frightened, cowering church facing the onslaught of the Roman Empire. Nothing. They feel so inadequate. They feel so insecure. They feel insufficient. They feel discouraged. I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And I will put the name of my God and the name of the new Jerusalem and my own new name on you. What wonderful promises. He's telling this church, look, I know times are hard. I'm in control of the service. You need a different perspective. You need to see things not as you see with physical eyes, you need to see them as I see them. So look up. Look up. Because eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor has entered in the heart of any man what God has prepared for those who love him. Look up. Look to Christ. Cling to who he is, what he's done. Listen to his promises. Listen to what he says. The promise is, even while he's there and he promises to come soon, and soon may not be our timetable, when he comes, he's preparing you for something altogether glorious, a new existence, a new identity, a new heavens, a new earth, in which he dwells and rules over his people joyfully forever. Do you see what he's doing? He's giving them something to hope in, to encourage them, to comfort them. He's saying to them ultimately what Paul says. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not the Roman Empire, not the Jews, not yourself. No matter what Satan says, no matter what the flesh says, no matter what the world says. Not life, not death, not angels, not principalities or powers, nor height, nor depth. Anything in all of -order, created order can separate you from the love of Christ. And so he closes as he does all the letters. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus' way of saying, not just to Philadelphia, but to you and I. Notice he's writing to one church, right? Singular. And yet he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. He doesn't intend this for just one church. He intends this for his churches in every age. The question is, are we listening? It, the easy thing is to shrug our shoulders, kind of act like Jews almost. We've done our religious duty this morning. We came to church. We came to prayer. We worshiped. We heard the preaching. We leave here. We did it. And if you want to do that, may God have mercy on your soul. Because when Jesus speaks to his churches, he intends for his people to hear and to apply. Dear friend, are you listening this morning? Do you hear what he is saying to you? I'll keep you. I know it's hard. I'll give you a new name. A new vision of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on his great promises. Cling to him. That's who you are. And as you're looking unto him, you'll be conformed to his likeness. That's the means to get to the destination. Remember who you are. Remember your king. Remember what he's done and appropriate it. If you are a Christian here this morning, covered by the blood of Jesus, you've repented of your sins, you've turned away from all things and returned to your king. If you're justified by faith alone in Christ, then know this. Jesus has done it all. He's died and taken on the wrath of God for you. He's risen. He's opened the door to the kingdom. And he says no one has the power to shut it. And he knows you. We've seen this in all the churches. He knows you. He knows your struggle. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. If you're here this morning and you just feel powerless and lethargic, and he knows. He knows your imperfections. And here he says, and oh, by the way, I'm holding you. I'm praying for you. You think the prayers of a righteous man availeth much? Hey, the prayers of the righteous man, they cannot fail. And I'm praying for you moment by moment every day of your life before the Father. And he's promised to make you, no matter how insignificant, as a true believer, a pillar in the temple of God. And promised eternal union with him in his presence forever. Do you hear? There's one other person here who needs to hear. It's the one who's keeping Christ at arm's length. It's verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but they are not. They lie. It is possible to be here this morning, to be here every Sunday morning, and to open the same book that we open, sing the same songs that we sing, pray the same prayers that we pray from Psalm 112, and yet your heart be distant from Christ. 
you're religious. Maybe you're here this morning because you had parents who grew up getting you to church, and it's just what you do on a Sunday. You're a good person. You're a moral person. You're a religious person. You're a good Jew, but not a true Jew. Paul makes that distinction. Not everyone who claims to be a child of Abraham is a child of Abraham. It's those who look like Abraham. They live by faith in Christ and look to Christ and hope in Christ. could be even here this morning. They're here who say the name of Jesus. But everything I'm saying up here just sounds like fanaticism. <laughs> sounds like, well, you're just... Jesus is the one who opens the door. When he opens it, no one can shut it. What a blessing. But don't miss that last part. Verse 8. He's also the one who shuts it. And when he does, no one can open it. If you reject Christ, oh, God has been so patient, giving so many opportunities. He does not promise another. When he shuts the door, it's shut. Won't you today finally, religious person, moral person, good church attender, good hymn singer, and good prayer during the prayer meeting this morning? None of those things are Christianity. Won't you repent from all your religion, repent from all your morality, and look to Jesus, turn to him, Confess your sins and cry out for him. The good news here, he's merciful, he's kind to this church at Philadelphia. The door is open. He who has an ear.